Hello and welcome once again to the Will Preach for Food podcast. My name is Doug. I'm pastor here at Faith Lutheran Church based out of Shelton, Washington. You can learn more about Faith Lutheran Church at our website, www.faithshelton.org. I want to thank you for tuning in today. Because it's been a rough week in the news. Political refugees stuck in Afghanistan and at our southern border. Wildfires in the west, floods in the north or in the south, killer bees and toxic algae and melting glaciers, COVID numbers roaring back while Americans argue about whether vaccinations are a civic duty or an attack on individual rights. Finger pointing, cancel culture, yelling and blaming, it's exhausting, isn't it? And depressing. If only, if only there was a way for Christians to withstand the onslaught of negativity, to rise above the pettiness, to find faith and hope. Well, it turns out that Jesus shows us the right way to fight the right battle with the right weapons. The battle that leads to hope and faith and salvation. Spoiler alert, the real enemy is not the person you think it is. Jesus shows us a different battle, a different way, God's way. And then the Apostle Paul comes along to explain in more detail what Jesus demonstrates. So we're going to look at two readings from the Bible today. We'll circle back around to Ephesians chapter 6 later on. But first, we're going to start with the story of the events just before the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. So, so I need you to turn to Luke chapter 22, the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 39. Luke 22, verse 39. Let us pray. Gracious God, open our hearts and our ears to hear and receive your word. And then give us the courage to do it. For Jesus' sake, amen. The Gospel according to Luke, the 22nd chapter, beginning at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his, the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. By the end of his ministry... Jesus and his disciples are political refugees. There's a warrant out for his arrest. Jesus had dared to show his face in Jerusalem during the busiest, holiest time of the year. 
He'd spent the week provoking and poking the religious leaders. And now, at night, their hideout has been compromised, and it was one of their own, Judas, who had supplied the intel. Jesus leads the disciples to a quiet place with decent cover. He instructs them to pray that they will not fall into temptation. Turns out they probably need prayers that they fall not asleep, which they do, which is not surprising given the five glasses of wine each of them consumed at the Passover celebration. That's what you did in the Passover celebration. While the disciples are sleeping it off, Jesus is praying to his father, respectfully wondering out loud if perhaps this whole crucifixion thing might be a bit much. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, he prays. An angel shows him some kindness. Jesus prays and processes and prepares himself for what is coming. Grief and anguish, sweat and tears streaming down his face like blood. He hears the lynch mob approaching, rousts up his sleeping friends and turns to face the music. And there's Judas and his now infamous kiss of betrayal. There is a mob for hire, the chief priest, other temple leaders, and the private temple security force. The rest of the disciples, still slightly buzzed and bleary-eyed, decide it's time for an old-fashioned bar fight. One of them had been carrying around his dad's old hunting knife and lurches toward the only guy in the crowd he thinks he can take in a fight, a kid about 12 years old, a servant of the high priest. Somebody later on figures out the guy's name was Malcolm or Malchus or something like that. Well, the blow from the knife takes a pretty good chunk out of the kid's ear. There's blood all over. Kid starts crying. Disciple drops the knife, turns to Jesus with a terrified look. The temple security team bristles, braces for armed conflict. The head of security positions himself in front of the high priest and tells his men to be ready. But then it's Jesus who takes control. He de-escalates the situation. He, not the head of security, gives the order, no more of this. The head of security keeps his position but tells the men to stand, stand down. Jesus carefully, quietly walks over to the little boy, calming him down. The guilty disciple scurries back to the others. Jesus speaks gently to the young man, gets down in the dirt with him, helps him off the ground, sits him up against a tree, With his sleeve, he staunches some of the bleeding, checks for major trauma, mumbles a few words that only the boy can hear. There's a mild tremor of power and love that sweeps through, and the boy resumes normal breathing, and the bleeding stops. Jesus hands the boy over to one of the security guards. Maybe it was the boy's older brother. And Jesus turns himself in without a fight. Consider this story then when we're reading another passage from the Bible, this one from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. Not whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Put on the full armor of God, the Bible says, because life is hard. It really is a battle, so we need to armor up, strap yourself in, and get ready for the fight of your life. You know, I never served in the armed forces. I've never been in the kind of battle that involves guns and tanks and air support and foxholes. And I can't imagine the struggles of Afghani people fearing for their lives as various regimes vie for political turf. In Costa Rica this summer, we met political refugees from Nicaragua and Venezuela. They were fleeing for their lives, leaving everything behind to, to seek to avoid death and imprisonment for themselves and for their children. Life is a battle. And sometimes the mission of the church has been described using military metaphors. Onward Christian soldiers, we sing, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. The metaphor is useful to a point. The Holy Spirit recruits, gathers, equips, and sends the church into the world to bring a gospel message announcing the kingdom of God. And there is opposition to this message, and Christians are called to armor up, to stand firm, and to fight the good fight of faith. But the problem with war imagery, as it pertains to the mission of the church, is that we, like those blurry-eyed and terrified disciples that night on Mount Olive, usually get it all wrong. We identify the wrong enemy, we fight the wrong battle, and we use the wrong weapons, and we end up hurting the very people we were sent to help. Let me say a little bit more about that. Ephesians 6 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They can't, he can't say it much more clearly or urgently, folks. Other people are not the enemy. Flesh and blood is not the enemy. The Bible can't be more clear about it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The disciples thought that the crowd that had come to arrest Jesus was the enemy. But the enemy was not the high priest, not the temple security, and certainly not some 12-year-old kid. Jesus had come to conquer and to fight the real battle, to conquer sin, death, and the devil. Today, our battle is not against Governor Inslee or former President Trump or other churches or my neighbor whose dog won't stop barking. Our enemy is certainly not some 12-year-old kid who wonders if they're transgender. Our enemy is certainly not a pregnant political refugee with her two kids at our southern border. Stand firm, the apostle continues, with the belt of truth tucked around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition, he says, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The disciples in the garden had misidentified the enemy, and then they used the wrong kind of weapon, an old hunting knife, a, a sword. Here, Paul lists the true weapons of the Spirit, which sound conspicuously similar to the gifts and fruits of the Spirit that he lists elsewhere. Things like truth, righteousness, which is the same word as justice. So truth and justice, peace, faith, healing, and the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. And so when the Christian soldier armors up, the Christian soldier looks and acts a lot like Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, the friend of the poor, the prince of peace, the gentle healer, the one who would rather die than cause the least of these to stumble or sin. The third thing that the story of Jesus in the garden shows us is, is how <laughs> um, it is so often the most vulnerable who suffer when we fight the wrong battle with the wrong rap weapons. A 12-year-old kid, an Afghani peasant family, a Nicaraguan school teacher and her two children. Okay, disclaimer, I don't know if the dude in the, with the ear was 12 years old or not. Maybe he was older, maybe he was a she, maybe he was a really mean guy who was attacking Jesus. What we do know from the story is that he is a personal servant of the high priest working the night shift. Hardly the most important person in the room, hardly someone who has authority, power, agency, or good health insurance. One of the most insidious tools of those in power is to pit vulnerable, vulnerable populations against each other. White settlers in the United States convinced indigenous tribes to fight each other. Slave owners in the South convinced poor white folk that the slaves were the ones who were to blame for making them poor. We had neighbors in Montana who, who were convinced that Muslims were the ones starting the forest fires. I spoke to a homeless gal recently who was convinced that Afghan refugees were to blame for her homelessness. No more of this, Jesus says. Stop fighting the wrong fight against the wrong people for the wrong reasons with the wrong weapons. Rather, Paul says, pray in the Holy Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, he says, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people and pray also for me. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, the Bible says. Our chief weapon, our chief source of hope and intel and marching orders is prayer, an ongoing conversation with God. Ten things about prayer. First, we pray to be in the presence of God, in relationship to the Father, in tune with the Holy Spirit, in communion with Christ Jesus and one another. That's what Jesus is doing in the garden when we are talking to and listening to God, we are in step with Jesus. Second, we pray not to be led into temptation, not to lose heart, not to fly off the handle, not to harm the very people we are called to serve, not to lose trust in God and in God's provision. Third, we can pray for some angel backup. When Jesus prayed, angels tended, tended to him. May you receive some angel mercy this week 
in your battles when it all feels like it's just a little bit too much. Fourth, Jesus prays for a way out. Take this cup of suffering from me, he says. Folks, it's okay to ask for a miraculous healing, a cure for cancer, a sudden reversal in climate change. God help us. Fifth, we pray as Jesus did, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And aside here, it sure seems like Jesus himself is praying the Lord's Prayer in the garden that night, doesn't it? Sixth, most prayer is accompanied by a lot of sweat and tears. Seventh, Paul teaches us to pray on all occasions, to be in an ongoing dialogue with God so that our prayers in times of crisis are not so overwhelming. Eighth, to pray for one another. Talk to God about other people more than you talk to other people about God. Ninth, pray for your enemies as Jesus does. Pray for those flesh and blood precious children of God who scare you, oppose you, disagree with you, or work to do you harm. And don't just pray about them, pray for them. Finally, tenth, pray for your leaders. Pray for me, Paul asks. And I ask the same. Pray for me. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your president and your governor. Pray for our troops and healthcare workers and teachers and all who are called upon to speak and teach and lead and serve the greater good. I think that about covers it for today. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you'll check out the website www.faithshelton.org to learn more about the God of Jesus Christ, the God who created you, who loves you, has a purpose for your life. Sign up for our weekly emails, like us on Facebook, subscribe to this podcast any way you listen to podcasts. I'm always grateful to Chaz and Emily for their production work every week. I'm grateful for the people of faith, for their witness, for their prayers, for their service in the name of Christ Jesus. And now may Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless you now and forever. Amen.